And it takes a turn as Jesus begins to make his way towards Jerusalem. And as he does, as, he, as Jesus takes a turn, Mark's emphasis also shifts. Because he wants you now to begin to consider another question, which is, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a Christian? What is that going to look like? What is it going to mean to have this man, Jesus, be the one who centers and shapes your life? And what today's passage teaches us is that it is going to have a profound impact on our most intimate of relationships and on how you value those that society doesn't. Before we look at that, for me, this summer has been awesome. Okay, we have had a, a great summer. One reason for that is I've had, we've had the, the privilege of taking part in three of our young couples' weddings in the, in the church here. And that's been a huge joy. Sometimes weddings can be tinged with something other than just joy, though, can't they? I mean, if you are single and you wish you weren't, You can be at a wedding and you absolutely share in the joy of that couple getting married. But at the same time, you can be stood there thinking, yeah, but will that ever be me? And maybe that's particularly the case if you experience same-sex attraction. Or if you're single and you're getting on and you think the ship has sailed, you might be stood there thinking, why wasn't this me? Or maybe you are married and you're at the wedding, but your marriage is strained. And you can listen to this young couple making their vows and you can see all of the love, all of the hope, all of the, the, the good things stored up for them for the future that are being spoken about. And you're not being cynical, but you are stood there thinking, yes, but what, will that, what might this look like in 10 years' time? Or maybe your marriage is not just strained, maybe it is broken, and you are happy for them. But what about me? Okay, so, and I say that because to talk about weddings and marriages, Jesus does here, is to talk about one of the most joyful and meaningful things that we can do. But if we're honest, it's also one of the most sensitive. And the problem when something is sensitive is that we can become defensive about it. And we can hear stuff, we're already hurting, we hear stuff, and we begin to put up our protective walls. Yet what this passage makes clear is that Jesus wants to speak even into these kind of sensitive areas. But to hear him... You've got to be willing to hear. And one reason for that is, is because it's not just Jesus who is trying to shape you. First point then, culture and relationships. Look at verse two. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, that is not, they, they are not interested in having some kind of a friendly debate with Jesus, are they? They want to trap him because they already know what they think. They just look at how they frame the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Okay, their view of relationship, the relationship between a husband and a wife, their view of marriage is male-centered. All the power in their culture lay with man, with men. And the universal view in Judaism at, in Judaism at the time was that it was a man's right to divorce his wife. The only question was, when could he use that right? Under what circumstances? And there were two opposing schools, both of whom looked to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, to defend their position. And that is where Moses wrote about a situation where a man found some indecency in his wife and then proceeded to divorce her. And of these two schools, the school influenced by Rabbi Shammai said that that indecency referred only to adultery. That was the only grounds on which he could divorce his wife. And that was the minority position. Whereas a school influenced by Rabbi Hillel argued that some indecency, well, that could mean anything. I mean, you know, hey, guys, if your wife burns the toast, you know, if she's a rubbish cook, or if you happen to see somebody more attractive, hey, you can legitimately divorce your wife. And that, sadly, was the majority position. Okay, so whichever school these Pharisees belong to, they have likely picked up that Jesus takes a different view about divorce, that he is even more conservative, and they want to expose him as one opposing Moses. Okay, so look how Jesus responds, verse 3. What did Moses command you? You see, what Jesus knows is that Moses did not command divorce in any situation which is why they have to reply, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. You see, what Moses did command in Deuteronomy 24 was that where a man had found some indecency in his wife and then decided to divorce her, he had to, this was what was commanded, he had to give her a certificate of divorce. He couldn't just chuck her out of the house. Okay, this had to be done legally. And that legal certificate enabled her to remarry and be provided for. Okay, which meant that rather than Moses giving men some kind of universal right to divorce, what he was actually doing was providing married women with some kind of legal protection and dignity. So they weren't just thrown out on the street. Because not only did her husband have to give her a certificate allowing her to remarry, if she did remarry, the other thing Moses commands there in Deuteronomy 24 is that the husband couldn't go and remarry her again if her second marriage failed. And you might think, why that command? Well, probably for a couple of reasons. Number one, her first husband couldn't now, maybe he thinks he's made a mistake, he couldn't now go and try and wreck her second marriage to get her back. And number two, he can't just use her as something to be discarded and then picked up again whenever he wants. Okay, but these Pharisees, they're not using Deuteronomy 24 like that, are they? They're not using it to protect women and to limit divorce. They're using it to sanction it. If a husband finds a reason to divorce, well, he can use it. 
Because for them, marriage was not a union of equals. Marriage was for the man to continue his family line. Okay, now, you might hear that and see how they were influenced by a patriarchal culture, a culture that saw women as a disposable commodity, and you can go, oh man, that's terrible. I mean, how could, how could they behave? How could they think like that? Okay, sure. How does our culture shape our attitudes to marriage and relationships? And what you realize is that we are both like and unlike these Pharisees. You know, recently, I read an article on how the Oxford English Dictionary is in a constant state of revision as the editors try and document every document and define every word that is used in the English language. And the June 2022 update caught my eye because among the words that made their very first entry into the dictionary were multisexual, pangender, and NB, which apparently stands for non-binary. So, while for these Pharisees, men were the boundary keepers of marriage, what does our current culture say? Our current culture says there are no boundaries. There are no boundaries. Whether it is same-sex, transgender, or polyamorous, or heterosexual, love is love. Anyone can get married or divorced. Okay, so, in, and the Pharisees would never have said that. Okay, so in some sense, we're very unlike the Pharisees, but also we are just like them. Because just like them, our current culture also sees marriage as disposable. All the time it's working for me. All the time it makes me feel good. All, all, all the time you know, we're, we're happy. We're, we're going forward together. Marriage is great, but if that is not the case, if this is not working for me anymore, then, then I'm free to move on. And if you think about it, on the one hand, romantic, in our current culture, in, on one hand, romantic relationships are everything. And you are somehow deficient if you're not in one. But on the other hand, they're disposable, easy, easily replaced. If we fall out of love, well, I'll find somebody else. Okay, so if that is what culture says, what does Jesus say? Second point then, Christ and relationships. And the first thing that he wants these Pharisees to confront is their own hearts what it is that is driving their attitudes to marriage and divorce. Okay, they tell him Moses allowed divorce, to which Jesus replied, verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he, Moses, wrote you this commandment. Okay, imagine a young couple as they stand opposite each other on their wedding day. What do they promise each other? What, what promises do they make? Well, if they use the traditional vows, and I'll talk about this in a minute, the groom promises to love his bride. I'm going to comfort her. I am going to honour and protect her. And forsaking all others, I am going to be faithful to her as long as I live. And then she promises the same. And then 
they promise to have and to hold each other from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death parts them. And then, as they place a ring on each other's finger, they say, with my body I honour you, all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. What is that? That is softness of heart. That is an openness, that is a vulnerability of heart put into words. And that is what is needed for a marriage to flourish. But, just like a hardening of the arteries can kill your physical heart, so a hardening of your emotional heart, a hardening of your volitional, will-making, decision-making heart, that can slowly kill a marriage. And Jesus is saying, when one or both partners in a marriage head to the exit, somewhere in the background, lurking, is hardness of heart. Instead of daily making those decisions, and they are daily decisions, to love and to cherish and to serve the other one, one or both has chosen not to. Instead of guarding the heart and turning the eyes and doing what is required to emotionally and physically forsake all others, one or both have begun to entertain the thinking that maybe someone else might be, more, might be a more attractive or attentive partner. Instead of seeking forgiveness or giving forgiveness, one or both, have instead laid another brick in the hard wall of bitterness or refusal to repent. So why, Jesus asks, did Moses have to regulate your habit of divorcing your wives? Because of your hard hearts. But of course, when Jesus talks of hard hearts, he's got something else in mind as well, hasn't he? Is that talk briefly about this in class this morning because when the Old Testament talks about hardness of heart it is describing how people shut down on God and refuse to hear him refuse to see life the way he sees it or when you make yourself or something else the object of your worship that's what it means to harden your heart and when you do that when you make yourself or your comfort, your personal happiness, your sexual pleasure, when you make that the thing that you love most, the thing that your world turns around, it is inevitably going to impact the way you see your relationships. Inevitably, it's just what we do. You are going to prioritize what you want, what you desire, and as you do that, you will harden your heart to what God wants and what God desires. And so Jesus is saying, at the root of the relational pain between a husband and a wife that ends in divorce, at the root of that is one or both partners hardening their hearts to each other and to God. 
Okay, but then rather than get into a debate with them about divorce, what does Jesus do? He talks about marriage, and he talks about God's desire for marriage. Verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And he's quoting from the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1.27, that far from, I mean, hey, far from what you are being told, out there at the moment by culture, far from sex and gender being a social construct, we have a binary sexual identity. And that binary male-female sexual identity is rooted in creation, just as it is written into every single cell in your body. So whatever new words our current culture comes up with, or however people seek to redefine marriage, Jesus says that at the very heart of marriage is our nature as male and female, two people who are like but unlike, two people who are the same but different. Okay, but that's not all he's saying. Okay, last week, a, a friend told me how a colleague had given a talk at work on the subject of misogyny. You know what misogyny is? It's a um, yeah, men having this attitude of dismissiveness, contempt, hatred, uh, prejudice against women. And the guy who was giving the talk, my friend said, he laid the blame at the door of Genesis, which I think is kind of ironic, because what Genesis one teaches us is that God created us male and female in His image. And we are both, therefore, his image bearers. So you're male and female. We are, both, we are created equal and we are created both as his image bearers. So your identity and your worth is not based first and foremost on your romantic relationships, on whether you're married or not, or on your sexual desires, your, your sexual orientation but on the fact that he made you, he created you. You're a work of his hands. And he made you to represent him out there in the world. And that is as true of women as it is of men. So it is not just our male and femaleness that is rooted in creation. It is our equality before God. So culturally... These Pharisees, they're thinking male rights. Men have the right to divorce. And Jesus is saying, no, husband and wife are equal. Which is why in verses 11 and 12, when he talks about adultery, he says, whichever partner does it, it doesn't matter. Your gender doesn't matter. You are both morally responsible. You are both morally responsible beings. Okay, so foundation number one of marriage that Jesus lays is it is between a man and a woman as equals. But then he lays another. And this time, he quotes from Genesis chapter two. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Okay, so what's marriage? I mean, what is marriage? 
marriage is the coming together of two individuals, a man and a woman, to make one new reality. In Old English, it is to leave and to cleave. Up until now, the husband, the man, he was loyal to his parents, and he was loyal to them above everybody else. But Genesis says, he, Jesus says, he is to leave them, and now he is to cleave to his wife. Now, above everybody else, he is going to be loyal and faithful to her. She takes that place, and he is to hold fast to her like glue. Now, one of uh, the modern fads in weddings, which I am not keen on, as the young couples here know, one of the modern fads in wedding is to write your own wedding vows instead of using the traditional ones, which, as I say, I'm not a fan of, and for a number of different reasons, and not just because I'm getting old and grumpy. Um, firstly, because it is, it is just very hard to say as much and to say it as beautifully and to say it with such an economy of words as the traditional vows say it. But also because if you write your own, you can end up missing things out that you should promise and promising, and promising things that you probably don't need to promise. Okay, like at a wedding we attended a few years back, and you are not in the room, okay, a few years back we attended a, a wedding where the bride promised her husband that she would surprise him every day. <laughs> I don't know about you, I could not imagine anything worse. I mean, can, can you imagine if Sue, my wife, saw it as her job to keep on surprising me? It would be terrifying, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, you couldn't go to a wardrobe and open it with walls. Oh, there she is. Oh, no. You know, you've got a rubbish bin. You go to put something in the rubbish bin, you take the lid off, oh, up she pops like a, darling, I'm fulfilling my wedding vows to you. Yeah, I'd live in a constant state of anxiety. Okay, but you can, so you can promise stuff that probably best you shouldn't promise. Uh, you can also leave stuff out that should be there. Because a friend of mine uh, recently experienced, went to a, um, a wedding of a young couple who made some really meaningful vows, promises to each other. But interestingly, they made no mention of being faithful. They made no mention of, and it's not because they're in some kind of open relationship, because they've got a good relationship. Okay? They made no mention of what the traditional vows put it as to forsake all others. Hey, I'm, I'm, fors I'm forsaking everybody else. I'm going to happen to hold you till death parts us. And they probably didn't mention it. Probably they just took it for granted. But of course, what you take for granted can quickly be forgotten. Instead, Jesus says, it is precisely this having and holding and not letting go. It is this creation of a new one flesh union that is about way more than just sex. It's this that is at the very heart of marriage. And it is why people who have experienced infidelity and divorce can describe it as being like an amputation. Because it literally is like part of you has been ripped away. Because as Jesus makes clear here, marriage is not just a contract of convenience that you know, lasts as long as marriage is meeting my needs. It is two individuals being fused into one new reality. And Jesus says, it's God who does the joining. 
verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, these Pharisees gave men all the power in marriage. But it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus does not come along and say, no, 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 no. Men and women are equal. You both have the right to divorce, which is what our current culture says. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he returns the authority in a marriage back to God. He's the Lord of marriage. And he's the Lord of every marriage. He's the one who defines what marriage is. He's the one who brings a couple together. And he is the one who glues them together. And what he glues together, Jesus says, no one else should separate. Now, if you are anything like Jesus' disciples, that is going to raise a whole load of questions for you, as it does for them. Verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And you can, you, know, you can think about the kind of questions they're asking. You know, I mean, Jesus, seriously? Is there no way out? Are there no grounds for divorce? And we don't have time to go into every possible scenario this morning. We're going to look at two. Just, we'll just pass over them very briefly. But before we do, I want you to imagine a soldier and a surgeon. A soldier and a surgeon. Because a soldier who is determined to stand strong in the battle does not do that by constantly looking around for all the escape routes. And a surgeon who wants to become a truly great surgeon won't do that by studying all the legal grounds for suing the bad ones. And it's the same with marriage. If you want to build a good and a strong marriage, looking at how you can legitimately divorce and get out of the marriage is probably not the best way to go about it. And yet in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus does say that where one partner has broken the covenant by committing adultery, divorce is possible. Not commanded, but it's possible or permissible. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul appears to imply that where a non-Christian spouse walks out on a marriage, a Christian doesn't have to fight endlessly to try and preserve it. But that's not Jesus' emphasis here, is it? Jesus' emphasis here is not the grounds for legitimate divorce. His priority here is the unbreakable bond of marriage. Which is why in verses 11 and 12 he says that it is precisely because God does not terminate the marriage that to remarry after divorce is to commit adultery. But what if that's you? I mean, what if that's you? What, 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 what if any of this is you? What if you are single and wish you weren't? What if you're married and it's hard? What if you're divorced or divorced and remarried? What if it's you? Well, the one hope for all of us, hey, it's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? It's the guy who's saying this because he is the only one who has ever perfectly loved his spouse and you are his spouse. And if you're single, 
It is knowing that he loves you with the life-laying-down love of a husband for his bride, and that he has made you, created you in his image to be his image-bearer. It is that that can give you an identity and a worth beyond anything a romantic relationship or marriage can ever give you. And if you're married, it is seeing how he sacrificed everything for you he sacrificed everything for you when you were far from faultless. In fact, when you were hard-hearted towards him, that can soften your heart. When you see that, it can soften your heart to the faults of your spouse and enable you to begin to create a marriage full of grace and forgiveness. And if you're divorced and you know, you recognize that you were not without blame, then know that Christ has already paid the price for your sin. He's already taken your shame upon himself. We might keep ourselves chained to the past. Other people might try and keep us chained to the past. Christ never does. And if that's you, and you subsequently remarried, I want you to see how Jesus describes such a couple in verses 11 and 12. He describes them as being married. He recognizes your marriage. So don't divorce again. Don't divorce again. Instead, if you've not done so already, seek his forgiveness for the past and then look to him for grace for your present and your future. Okay. Following Jesus doesn't just transform how you see marriage. It will also transform how you see the offspring of marriage, children, Third point, culture and worth. And we're just going to go quickly through this. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Fascinating, isn't it? Why rebuke them? Are they so worried that children are going to exhaust Jesus? Like they exhaust us? Are they, do, they, do they think he's going to... They're going to distract Jesus from more important things? No. It is that in their culture, it's not just women who lacked social status, so did children. So these disciples think, children, the children are beneath Jesus, and they're beneath us. Kids aren't worth his time. Okay, is our culture any better? Does a culture that is built on personal freedom, my personal freedom to pursue whatever makes me happy, and that prioritizes image rather than vomit on your shoulder, that, uh, that prioritizes image or wealth and the accumulation of stuff because children are expensive. Does such a culture lead us to treat, or how does it lead us to treat those we might see as a burden or who lack in social capital, like the unborn or the elderly? or those who are beneath you on the social or academic or intellectual ladder? How does our culture encourage us to treat people like that? Do you look down on them as the disciples look down on children? And Jesus sees what's going on, and Mark says, verse 14, he was indignant. Interesting, isn't it? What you get angry about says a whole lot about what you really value, doesn't it? Last point then, Christ and worth. 
And instead of sending them away, Jesus takes his children and he blesses them and says, verse 14, hey, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. In other words, you may not value them, but God most definitely does. But again, to value what he values is going to require heart change. Verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, it is not that children have to become like us before we value them. It's that all of us have to become like them. You see, a child naturally trusts and depends on his parents. And to enter God's kingdom, Jesus says we need to stop evaluating ourselves and others based on the quality of our resumes. And instead, we need to humble ourselves and come trusting in Christ and depending on him like a child would. What can help you do that? What can cause us to drop our pretensions and come knowing, come to Christ knowing we have nothing to bring when you know that to save you, God's son, his child, had to die for you. But he loves you so much he did die for you. Get that and you will begin to value those the world sees as unvaluable. And as you do, hey, consider... Consider finding a place to serve kids. You know, we are always, I'm going to give a plug, we are always looking for recruits for Sunday school and creche. And at the moment, we are a bit desperate. Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to them. Why not be a part? If you're not serving already, why not be a part of helping them enter that kingdom? Let's pray.